You're listening to the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute podcast, where leading thinkers come together to discuss the latest insights, facts and stories about social cohesion in Australia. Australia put an incredible amount of resources into making this program work. Half the whole budget for migrants and refugees integration programs goes into this English program. That's how important it's been. In the last 10, 15 years, but particularly in the last five or six years, the program has lost its way. Welcome to the latest podcast episode from the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. My name is Stefan Delatovic, and today I'm talking to James Button. Welcome. Hi, Stefan. James is a Walkley Award-winning journalist and speechwriter, and importantly, an author for the Institute's Applied Research Centre. In that role, he explores relevant and emerging social cohesion topics, curating existing research and writings to ensure the public consciousness is informed by clear findings and rationale. Sounds like a big and important job. <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking to you today because we are discussing the Institute's third narrative, which you have written, titled Australia's English Problem, How to Renew Our Once-Celebrated Adult Migrant English Program. It looks at the current landscape of English language learning among migrants and refugees in Australia. I enjoyed reading it and I'm looking forward to talking to you about it today. So am I. To get started, perhaps provide the uninitiated with a brief history of the program and how it's changed in recent years. Sure, Stefan. So the Adult Migrant English Program is really the flagship program for integrating new migrants and refugees into Australia. It began in 1948, so at the very start of the post-war immigration program. In fact, even before the program started, the Australian government was funding English classes for non-English speaking migrants coming to Australia on the ship. Now, of course, in those early days, most of the migrants were coming, first of all, from Britain and Ireland, Mm. um, but gradually we took migrants, first of all, from the Baltic countries and Northern Europe, then from Southern Europe and then from other countries. So gradually the proportion of migrants coming to Australia who did not speak English as their first language grew. But the Australian government saw from the very outset of the program that to be part of Australia, you had to speak English. And remember in those days, the program was very much geared to assimilation. You know, you were to become an Aussie as quickly as possible. <laughs> in fact, Arthur Call, the first immigration minister, coined the term New Australian, which when I was a kid, we used to laugh at, you know, that phrase was considered a little bit comical, you know, like <laughs> New Australian. But in fact, it, it actually expressed a really uh, powerful idea that, you know, a lot of migrants have gone to countries where they've never really been formally invited to be part of the country. And there are European countries that have always considered their migrants as being somehow separate. But in in Australia, the goal was to become part of this country as quickly as possible. And that phrase, New Australian, which we've totally moved past today, nevertheless sort of captured that goal. And the English language training aspect was very much part of that. Mm -hmm. So from 1948, when the migrants were at the um, Bonagilla Migration Centre in northern Victoria, the first big transit centre for migrants coming to Australia, where people would live, they would be required to study four hours a week um, for 25 weeks, to study English four hours a week for 25 weeks. And those four hours were divided into four one-hour blocks. And one of those blocks was becoming an Australian. (laughs) (laughs) How you become an Australian, you know? A very succinct topic. Uh, A very very succinct topic, you know, you had a bet on the Melbourne Cup. <laughs> 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 Who knows? You know, I wasn't there. But um, the 
you know, very much it was perceived that um, that it was important to learn English and not learn English in an academic way but in a very situational way. Mm-hmm. How am I going to manage on the bus? How am I going to manage when I'm in the, in the shops or I'm asking an employer for a job? So this in the late 40s was actually quite innovative in language learning. You know, mm-hmm. language learning tended to be quite academic. You know, you'd learn the structures of the language, yeah. how, to, how a verb worked, you know, all of those things that you might remember from your, your school <laughs> language learning. Perhaps you're too well, young. kind of. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I certainly do. I'm old enough to remember yeah, language is being taught that But this way. was more about uh, language as a tool to navigate day-to-day existence. Correct, exactly. And so Australia was a, a bit of a world leader in that. And as the years progressed, we developed a bunch of techniques through the Adult Migrant English Program to, to really develop that idea of, of learning English that, that was relevant to your, your life immediately. And this program became very important to new migrants. The teacher would be the, the one, uh, you know, Australian, you know, not from their community that, mm-hmm. that the migrants would know. So they would ask all sorts of questions about how Australia operated and, and what should I do in this situation? And so it became a really important tool, not just of English language learning, as important as that was, but of becoming part of this country. And so a lot of teachers found that very fulfilling work, you know, to be really at the front line of integrating new migrants into the country. And we developed uh, world-leading methods of, you know, in curriculum and assessment. And, you know, it really is a program that Australia could be proud of. And you see this in the parliament in 2017, eight MPs, four from the two main parties, Labor and Liberal, stood up in the parliament said, you know, this is a a jewel in the crown of Australian multiculturalism. Mm. But there's a catch. In the last 10, 15 years, but particularly in the last five or six years, the program has lost its way. And my narrative really explores the consequences of what it means for uh, Australia to have lost the kind of power and quality of of its really primary integration, you know, uh, program for our new migrants. Yes, and not to spoil the ending of your narrative, but you do come to, and it's already clear in the way you discuss it, but you find that the program is important and worthy of investment. Is that, did you set off with that mission? Did you set off to explore a program which you understood to be so vital or did you come at this with a more blank slate and that's what you discovered? That's a good question. No, I didn't really at all, actually. I We wanted, the Scanlon Research Institute, we wanted to look at English language learning amongst migrants. Okay. And the reason why we wanted to do that is because the number of, the percentage of Australians who don't speak English at home is growing. It's now about one in four. Mm-hmm. And I think it's um, 28% of our population is born overseas, and another 21% has at least one parent. We're very much a migrant society. And yet it's widely believed, both by people born in this country and by migrants themselves, that the key to getting the royal road to becoming Australian is to learn English. I was Much fascinated. more important than whether you were born here or not. Yeah, that yeah. was so interesting to me that when you ask uh, sort of rank and file Australians and what's file the Aussies. most important yeah. thing that makes you an Aussie, being able to speak English is more Absolutely. important than where you were born. Absolutely. There's an ANU poll that 92% of people polled in this 2015 study said that 
being able to speak English is the most important characteristic to being an Australian. And that's, uh, I suppose that's obvious. You know, it means we can all talk to each other and, you know, language is the very, you know, most important tool for living. So, so just to come back to your question, we really started with a sense of how is that going? We have some concerns about how English language learning is going. The, the census figures show that the numbers of people who say that they don't speak English well are growing. Having been steady to about 2006, mm-hmm. in the last two censuses, there's been quite a dramatic uptick in the numbers of people who say they don't speak English well. And so I chose the AMEP, the Adult Migrant English Program, because it is the flagship program for English learning. But we didn't start out to investigate the AMEP as such. And is the hypothesis that people, less people are speaking English well at home is that do do we know why that is? Is that because of changing demographics? It's because of changing demographics, and there are three key uh, groups where there's a, an issue about speaking English. The first of these groups, um, this is not in size, but there is a, a large proportion of Chinese immigrants to Australia who say that they don't speak English well, and that begins if you go back to the 90, early nineties when the Tiananmen Square, the students and dependents of the students came to Australia, or they were in Australia. Australia in many cases, but they stayed. And from those groups going on, and particularly in the last 10 years, we've been taking a lot of migrants from China. And in that group, there is a significant proportion who say they don't speak English well. The second group are amongst humanitarian entrants and refugees, mm-hmm. and, and they come from many different countries. But they've often had very disrupted education, war, trauma, famine, you know, has often prevented those people come to Australia uh, from really studying much. And often they're not even necessarily that educated in their own language, let alone in English. So there are challenges there. And then the third group are women who are at risk of isolation. Uh, What might typically happen with migration is that a couple might come out, perhaps as a skilled worker or as a even students who convert to Australian permanent residence or as a, um, as a refugee where the man goes and works and the woman is at home. And some women are at real risk of being isolated and therefore don't learn English. They're at home, they take their kids to school. There'll come a time when their kids will grow up only speaking English or, or being bilingual but often preferring to speak English. Mm-hmm. And it's critical that we reach all of those groups and, but in the case of that third group so that those mothers can succeed and function in Australian society, including talking to their own kids. And picking up on that idea of isolation, I was interested to read in your narrative the role that technology plays in that, in that you sort of imagine technology as a binding agent for society. Like when we traditionally talk about social media and those sort of things, we talk about people being able to share thoughts more publicly and sort of bringing many different humans together. So I was interested to hear you or read you discuss this idea that technology is actually allowing us to create effectively unconnected cultural islands within Australia. Could you talk a bit about that? That's right, Stefan. It's a different world from the migrants who came out in the 1950s (laughs) and 1960s when, when they came on a ship and they often expected never to go home to their country of origin and many of them never went back. So the commitment to Australia and the need to succeed in the new country was very intense and that that included learning English. Although, of course, in those days there were many factory jobs that didn't require you to learn English, so not all migrants did learn English. But today you can fly to Australia and then 24 hours later you can fly back home. (laughs) That's the first thing, right? We're, We're connected 
in terms of transport. Mm. But but there is also the media connection that you can actually be living in Sydney or Melbourne or Dubbo or or Geraldton, wherever, and have a satellite dish that pipes into your home all media, news, entertainment, everything in your own language. And you can, in the big cities of Australia, you can shop in the big migrant communities. You can uh, shop in Chinese, you get your hair cut uh, in Chinese, Arabic, Vietnamese, whatever. So the opportunities to engage with the mainstream society can actually be reduced by technology just by the fact that you can be at home connected up and not needing to work out how you know the newsreader on channel 7 what that person's actually saying so so i think somebody used the phrase digital enclaves if you like you know that exists as a risk for the meshing of the society that we need to address mm. cuz presumably the risk there is that you can live a majority of your sort of social existence in one of these enclaves, but there is a time where there would be a hard edge to such a thing, particularly you would imagine with government services and that sort of thing. And the workplace. Of course you can sometimes uh, find a job, say if you're a Chinese immigrant or student, you might find a job in a Chinese workplace like a you know a business or a restaurant or anything, but that's a small part of the overall overall workplace. And and besides, we want people to be able to speak English, their own language as well. We want people to be bilingual, but we want them to be able to engage and integrate with uh, the mainstream community, be that at work or school, in the park, you know, all of the ways that being able to communicate enhances the experience of, of being in, alive in a particular place. So hence the importance of the English programs. Which speaks to the story you tell about the AMEP and the way that it's potentially lost its way, there seems to be, as time's gone on, a sort of splintering in understanding about the overall goal of the program with some seeing it still as about integration and settlement, but it seems to be drifting more towards pure employment outcomes. Have I read that correctly? Yes, you have. And I think there are a number of issues why the AMEP has lost its way. One of them is just the universal pressure on government programs to deliver more with less, and we can see this across the board, but there's no doubt that since the 1990s, the Adult Migrant English Program has been put out to competitive tender, so it's no longer run directly by the government. It's run by private and not-for-profit providers, and they tender for the contracts. And, of course, there is always a tendency to fund. The government says this is not the case, but I've spoken to people who say that risk is realised in some cases that the lowest cost tenders are selected. And that's one issue. Another issue is the one you point to, which is a tension between the employment and settlement goals of the program. What do we mean by that? Obviously, employment is getting people into jobs as quickly as possible. But settlement means being as a migrant, being able to go to my children's school and talk to the teacher. It means understanding how the police operate in Australia. It might be very different from the way the police operate in uh, my home country. Learning how to buy a ticket on the bus, all of those things that we call settlement, which is actually being able to navigate the new country. And the AMEP really began as a settlement program. Because when it began back in the 50s, 
there was so much work in Australia that the problem was actually keeping the migrants in the class <laughs> because they'd been for two lessons and then there'd be a job down at Ford and off, off they'd go <laughs> and they'd be gone, right, you know, mm-hmm. you know because that's what they're here to work and make, make money. And yeah. so that settlement program, that settlement emphasis of the program has been and remains very important. And some of the innovative work that's been done by some AME providers has been, for example, taking pregnant women to the hospital where they are going to give birth and teaching them some of the language around around birthing in Australia or getting a police officer in to talk about policing in Australia or excursions to um, a sporting facility. The Western Bulldogs here in Melbourne had a one, one of the providers used to take migrants out to the football, you know, to talk to people at the football club. So that sense of one of the things that the AMEP did very well was to focus on this question of settlement. But it's expensive without a necessarily obvious return. And we've become very focused on returns. You know, what is the return on investment here? To some extent, understandably, but I think in the case of the AMEP, it has become very, very punishing. And the other thing that's happened is, two other things that's happened that that have really hurt the AMEP, that there's a lot of demands of compliance that the people who teach the program have to keep showing that the students are turning up, that you know, there's marking the role all the time. There's been a really strict focus on showing that they're delivering value. And the other thing that's happened is that um, the settlement focus of the AMEP has been downgraded for employment. And Really, the program should do both. It's important to prepare people for employment. But the AMEP has never set as its goal getting people to the level of English that is really necessary for employment. And what the AMEP does is that it provides 510 hours of tuition, although you can extend that now up to 1,000 hours. But once you get to a a level of English that is known as um, Uh, level two functional English, then you have to exit the program. Now, level two functional English is actually still a very low level of English, almost certainly too low to do most jobs. But that's the point at which you leave the program. And in fact, most students don't even attain that level. But because functional English is a low level, a pre-employment level, it was never really seen as a preparation for employment. The students who were gifted in language would often race through their hours quickly, get to functional level two, and that'd be off. And they can go to other TAFE courses, they can go up. But most students don't get to a level of English that would have them ready for jobs. And of course, the workplace has changed, Stefan. It's much harder to get jobs without having a reasonable level of English. Let's say you're a cleaner. Today, you have to be able to read the labels on bottles that talk about which chemicals are hazardous and which are not. You know, there's a lot of skills that are required in the workplace that demand that the job seeker has has a reasonable level of English. So the AMEP can't be blamed, if you like, if its students aren't made work ready because it was never intended to do that. It was to give you a basic level of English from which you would proceed on to further study or perhaps very simple tasks within jobs. But the government's focus has gone on to employment, hasn't reaped the benefits in employment, but has weakened the settlement component of the program. So, for example, the MEP used to have these counsellors who 
would work with the students. I mean, Australia put an incredible amount of resources into making this program work. Half the whole budget for migrants and refugees integration programs goes into this English program. That's how important it's been. And these counsellors would actually be do one-on-one work with the students going, how are you going with your English? What's your next steps after AMEP? What do you think you might do? Perhaps I can help you with that. Now, recent contracts have made it much less attractive for providers of the program to keep um, hiring those counsellors to to work with the students. Some still do it, but if the budget is tight, providers are more likely to say, well, we'll dispense with the counsellor. So some of the more innovative features of the program have been lost and in that the settlement focus has been downgraded for a focus on employment. What the program needs to do is to help those people who want to get quickly into employment to do so but still look after those people whose English is at such a low level that employment is out of the question. And, you know, people come as parents of other migrants. They might be 80. They're not going to be working, right? But they still should have the opportunity to learn English. There are two 90-year-old Russians in Sydney studying in the AMEP or the word, you know. <laughs> so great, you know, but they need to be accommodated as well. Yeah. Well, and as you say, the, the social and economic benefits do not seem mutually exclusive. It's just if it's not mindful, it appears that it's just being sort of chipped away by ticking boxes and, and making sure it's turning a profit and that sort of thing. I think there's a rising awareness that, that that's the case, including in government. An issue that comes up often in Australia in this sphere and, and in many is the sort of metropolitan versus regional areas. And in this sphere, there's often talk of fostering migration um, outside of the major metropolitan areas. But in my experience, having sort of grown up in the country, there's just less money to go around out there. So how does that impact on this? It seems if we're talking about presumably a mainly metropolitan delivered program already being hard strapped would be more pronounced out in the bush? That's a great question. Um, As you know, uh, most migrants come to the big cities and I think the figure is that 83% of all migrants live in our big cities compared to 61% of the population as a whole. But the government has quite clearly flagged its desire to reduce the pressure on Sydney and Melbourne in particular by encouraging migrants to move to the regions. Now, there's not yet a whole lot of evidence that that is working because migrants come to the big cities for a reason. That's where the jobs are. And often because their communities are established there already from their source countries. However, if migrants are to move to regional centres, there are problems in terms of the AMEP because the capacity right now, the AMEP does not deliver programs in many of those regional centres and probably delivers less than it used to. Uh, There is a distance learning component to the AMEP, but the numbers in the distance learning in recent years have been in freefall, down. And so distance learning is one of the areas that needs to be reinvested in because if migrants are going to move to different parts of Australia, they really need to have support. Now, of course, one of the benefits of moving to a country town is that you actually will be forced to learn English in the way that I described before, that if you're living in a big city, you don't necessarily... You can live in your community, migrant community and, and not necessarily have to speak English too much. But if, you, if you're living in Dubbo, that's going to be a lot harder. Yeah. Nevertheless, newcomers need help. You know, we've always done this well as a country. And if the government is serious about investing in its 
kind of measure of the seriousness of its desire to get migrants into regional centres would be to invest in the AMEP in those places. So far, we haven't seen that. Which does not seem to be, you know, I detect no ill will. There seems to be continued widespread support for multiculturalism as a foundation stone of Australia as a successful country. From the population, you mean? Mm. Yes, that's right. I, th- I think that's right. All the Scanlon Mapping Social Cohesion Survey that is done every year shows that 80 plus percent of Australians support multiculturalism. A similar figure uh, say that immigration has been good for Australia. So the the foundation of support for a multicultural society is still there. And that will definitely include, as we've seen from the polls, support for migrants learning English. Because one of the, the other things that Australians say in survey after survey, if you look at the Scanlon survey, is that migrants should be encouraged to fit into Australian society. Interestingly, in the last social cohesion survey, there's been growth in the percentage of Australians who say that migrants should be supported to maintain their own cultures. Mm -hmm. Uh, But clearly that comes within a larger popular view that you've got to become Australian, whatever that means, you know, and and it's not, you know, that I hope is a very diverse uh, label, but, but certainly being able to speak the language is considered part of that. Yeah, it appears from the survey results that English is seen as a tool, but there's there's not a suggestion from the widespread population that you should speak only English. Oh, no. No, I don't think so. That's not what I... I think the emphasis is on having all of us being able to communicate with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And then beyond that, you know, I think Australians would be sophisticated enough to realise that being able to speak a different language or two different languages, is a gift. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's a gift on all sorts of levels. Mm. So is the AMEP the best way to deliver learning of English for this cohort? Are there any other players or programs that you could foresee feeling this need better? I think it's the most important way, but it's certainly not the only way because, of course, we have uh, migrants who come here as secondary students. The AMEP is for adults although you can, as a refugee, age 16 and above, you can access AMEP programs. But obviously the school system is a very important way of teaching young migrants English. There is also a whole array of community uh, services in libraries, church groups, um, in some businesses for learning English, which is outside the AMEP. And there is also the Community Hubs. The Community Hubs is a program that is managed by the Scanlon Foundation, uh, mainly Commonwealth money, which is attached to, mostly attached to primary schools. And the thinking behind the Community Hubs, and comes back to that issue of women at, at risk of isolation that I mentioned before, is that a key point of interaction for many migrants, especially mothers, will be the primary school. And so building community hubs within primary schools and there might often be a preschool centre there as well. So a mother might drop her children off at school or preschool and then right there she can take an English class. Great idea because one of the problems with the AMEP is that often the childcare, the AMEP makes childcare available, but often the childcare is at a different place from the English class. 
big problem. If you've been in broad meadows lately, you know, the buses don't always come <laughs> all the time and, you know, you're racing between one and the other. Yeah. You might just go, I'll skip the English class, you know, just drop my kid off at the... So the community hubs are, you know, really, um, and they're growing, you know, an imaginative way to address the that third group in particular of women at risk of isolation. So there are different creative ways to address the Australia's English language deficit and we probably need more of them. Mm-hmm. So to wrap up, your final word on the AMEP, what would you see would improve it and ensure its longevity in Australia? One thing that has really worked well in the AMEP, Stefan, has been the Settlement Language Pathways into Education and Training Program. That's a long-winded term for a very, very effective sub-program within the AMEP. And what that program does is that it provides an opportunity for migrants studying in the AMEP to get work experience. And so employers sign up to um, the program and you might go and work for a local council or for a business 10 hours a week as part of your AMEP and then you bring the experiences back from the workplace into the classroom. It's been a very effective program and one of the things that I, I think and people who are kind of specialist in this area think is that the this work experience program could be expanded, expanded perhaps to it's, it's always been the students at the higher levels of English language learning who have taken that program, but it could be expanded to students at lower levels because one, that's what students want is to get out into, into the workplace. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you get that raw exposure to Australian life in the workplace. You stumble in the workplace where you don't know what to say but then you go back to the classroom and the teacher <laughs> says what what you could have said was this right yeah. then you go back and try it again the, the, the next day so yeah, that's what one does thing she will be right yeah what is why well, do people keep saying it to me at work one one student from china she said what does spit the dummy mean she was working <laughs> in a in a childcare childcare she came back and she said what does spit the dummy mean <laughs> so so you get that great interaction between the classroom and the workplace we mentioned just before about other approaches to English language learning. A really interesting initiative is happening out in Wyndham in far west of Melbourne around the Werribee area where a consortium of um, English language and refugee programs has got together to provide place-based services for refugees in that area. Now, there are a lot of refugees from Burma in that area and a lot of these workers are working in the sort of market farms just south of Werribee, agriculture, um, vegetables, um, and the English language programs have been taken to the workplace. So the workers will do their shifts, say seven to three, and then perhaps have an English class afterwards, right there in sort of huts built on the workplace. Um, And then they might go back to the centre to talk to a counsellor about their sort of settlement experience. So this is an attempt to create a whole place-based where everybody, rather than just separate services all competing with each other, everybody integrates the services into one place. That's not AMEP, but it's one more example of creative ways to address the English language issue. AMEP will always be, I think, the biggest program. So I've talked about the work experience program. We can look at increasing the hours for some people so they have more time. Also, there are time limits at the moment on starting in the program. You have to have started within a certain number of months after arriving in Australia and you have to complete within five years. Now, if you write asking for an extension, you usually get one. But why not formalise that and make it over a longer period? Because sometimes people come to Australia and in those early years, for whatever reason, they might be suffering trauma or they might be raising children or they might be working. They're unable to study. 
Uh, but if you were to give people a longer period in which to study, that would make it, I think, more easy. Another issue that I think is difficult but I think needs to be looked at is that we have a whole generation of teachers who have gone through the AMEP who are now getting towards the end of their careers. Now, these are people who might have taught in the, in the AMEP for 30 years or so. I think that we need to look at who's replacing that generation of teachers because, of course, as we all know from school, the thing that matters most is the teacher, right? <laughs> and I'm not sure that we're getting the replacement teachers at the same calibre as those teachers who went through in that generation. And a final thing that I think the government needs to look at is stop rewriting the contracts every three years and awarding the tenders to new providers all the time. Now, that's the way the system operates. But the problem with that is that people build up a lot of knowledge and a lot of kind of lived experience of how to deliver these programs. Then they lose the contract and it's all gone, you know. Some of the people from there might go and work over there, but there's a vast loss of expertise. My feeling is if providers are doing a very good job and it's clear they're doing a good job, then perhaps they should be allowed a longer contract. You know, these are some of the things that I think we need to be creative about how we can return the AMEP to its preeminent position, the position that it held globally, really, in, in teaching English to migrants, because the stakes are very high. The stakes are high for making sure that you know, the many people who come to Australia have the best possible experience in this country and that the country itself benefits from their skills, their enthusiasm and commitment for the place by ensuring that they can use this fundamental tool of living, which is to be able to speak, to connect with each other. James, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Stefan. It's been wonderful to talk to you. You too. Thank you. For those interested in learning more about the AMEP, you can download the full version of the narrative, either in a written or audio version, at scanlaninstitute.org.au slash narratives. Thank you for listening to the Scanlan Foundation Research Institute podcast. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with your network. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter or subscribe to our mailing list at scanlaninstitute.org.au to ensure you don't miss future episodes.